All right, so we want to recap the story really quick, uh, just so we get a big picture of kind of what this was. Again, this is part two of last week, so um, hopefully you already heard that. And then I'm going to point out a couple verses as we go along. All right, so John chapter 4 starts off, and it's like Jesus needed to go through Samaria, which was crazy because Jews never went through Samaria, but he had an appointment there. He needed to go through Samaria. When he gets into Samaria, the disciples go away to get some food, and Jesus meets this woman at the well. She's all by herself in the middle of the day, drawing water, and uh, this woman had been shunned by her community because of her past, and... Jesus does something very honoring, actually, by sitting down and even speaking with her, which would have been very rare for a Jewish uh, teaching man to do this with a, a woman from Samaria who had her past. But he does it. He honors her, asks her if she can help him, which is very dignifying for her, by getting him some water. Uh, they begin speaking. She's kind of tripping out. She's like, actually, before they speak, she's like, why are you even talking to me? Right? And then he says to her, this is the first verse I want to point out. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would actually have asked him, he's speaking of himself, and he would have given you living water. The implication here is that, uh, woman, there's something happening here that's a lot bigger than what you can see, but you're not able to recognize it. If you were, we'd be having a much different conversation than we are having, but she doesn't get it. Jesus tells her then, hey, I know about your five husbands. Um, I know about the man that you are living with who you're not married to. And for a moment, she begins to engage with that, which probably would have been really hard for her to hear, um, but then immediately changes the subject and begins to talk about this social religious issue about where should we worship? Where, where, where does God want us to worship? Which we'll talk more about next week. Jesus finally reveals that he is the Messiah. Her eyes are open and everything starts to make Sense Everything that she was previously distracted by suddenly doesn't matter. She drops her bucket and she goes back and tells the people in her community that she has just found the Messiah who knows everything about her. Meanwhile, the disciples come back from getting food. They're tripping out. They're like, why is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? What's happening? And Jesus says to them in verse 35, here's the other verse I want us to see. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The implication is the harvest is right here, right now. There's something happening. If you could just open your eyes and see. The woman comes back with her community. Jesus communes with them, stays with them. Many are saved. It is a great revival and great worldwide movements are made up of millions of individual moments like these ones. Jesus is bringing revival right here. But as we saw last week, both of these groups, the woman and the disciples, are missing it. On one hand, that's encouraging to me because I'm like, well, I guess God could be doing something and people could totally be missing it. But on the other hand, and more importantly, I don't want to miss it. And if something is happening, we should want to see it because you can't participate in something that you can't see. Jesus, help us, Lord, to care, to want to even see. So the question I would like to answer today, or at least try to, is why is it that sometimes we fail to see? I think there's some clues here. I'd like to identify five reasons. There's probably more, but what I see is five reasons in this chapter of the Bible. We'll see the first three reasons with the woman, the last two with the disciples. Why is she missing it? Is it possible that maybe her vision was impaired by other things? 
I would like to propose that yes. It appears that number one, debilitating shame had blinded her from seeing God's gift and God's face. He's like, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, she couldn't see God's gift. She couldn't see the face of God in the Messiah. She couldn't tell what was happening, right? Now, John makes sure to tell us in verse 6 of this chapter that she was at the well at noon. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason, okay? She's at the well at noon. Why is this important? Because women in the first century usually were the ones who would go and get water for their families from the well. However, they always did it together in a group, and they always did it early in the morning before the hot desert sun had heated up the dry desert air. But she is there by herself at noon. Why? Well, verse 18 tells us that she had been married five times and she was now living with someone who wasn't her husband. Why did she go to the well at a time of day when she could be sure that no one else would be there? Shame. The level of shame that this woman would have experienced day in and day out would have been almost unbearable and absolutely inescapable. And so she hid in her shame. Because shame forces people into isolation. Remember in Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and his wife Eve were both naked and unashamed. Why does the Bible tell us that they were naked and unashamed? Like, so specific. Well, because the chapter after this, Genesis 3, that all changes. Adam and Eve disobey God. In chapter 3, the eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3, 7 says that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig, fig leaves on themselves and made coverings for themselves. And they hid from the Lord God. What changed their minds about how they felt of their nakedness? Shame. They now understood their capacity to do evil and that they had wronged God and they were overwhelmed with the shame of their disobedience and sin. Shame is the awareness of our depravity plus our separation from God coupled with an awareness that there's nothing we can do to fix it. And so we hide. But also the other thing that shame does is it pushes us so low and convinces us so deeply of our unworthiness and lack of value that it actually prevents us from receiving anything good, even from God. Shame forces us into isolation and forbids us from receiving good things. I had a friend a couple of years ago who was so full of shame that when his birthday came that year, he he wouldn't even allow us to throw him a birthday party because he, quote, wasn't deserving of that kind of love. It's no wonder that Jesus says in verse 10 that this woman can't see or receive the gift that God has for her. It's what shame does. But shame, I'm sorry, but Jesus came to lift us and her from our shame. Remember, God came out to Adam and Eve to pull them out of hiding. Jesus came out and found us to do the same, and he's doing it even now if we'll let him. 
The second thing we see as a possible hindrance to this woman's ability to recognize what's going on is that, number two, pressing earthly needs had obstructed her view of eternal things. Jesus tells her in verse 13, he's like, everyone who drinks this water, the well water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I'm gonna give him will never thirst. Beautiful, eternal. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not get thirsty and have to come to this well anymore. Jesus is like, I wanna give you eternal water. And all she could think about is her physical need for H2O. Sometimes our immediate practical needs can become so big or our view of them so big. Look, at, just take your hands, put them together like this. Okay, this is like your need. This is your practical need right here. It's like, yeah, it's there, but it's not gigantic. Now put it this close to your face. When our view of our practical needs becomes like this, they become an obstacle to us seeing what is right in front of us. Try to look right on the other side of your, eye, your, your hands without opening your fingers. That's what Jesus was right there. Jesus was right on the other side of her huge need. The gift of God right there, the Messiah right there. She couldn't see him. Because the, the, the perspective of her need had become so big and it totally eclipsed the bigger thing that was right there. This is a solar eclipse, right? That's what a solar eclipse is. This tiny little moon, 400 times smaller than the sun, gets in just the right spot that it totally uh, eclipses and obstructs our view of the gigantic, powerful sun. Isn't this so often us? Our very real, temporal, but real needs uh, become so big to us that they obstruct our view of the bigger thing that God is actually doing right there. Now, don't get me wrong. God cares about our needs, big or small. He really cares about them. But that's the point. Because he so deeply cares, we don't have to worry. Right? This is what Jesus said. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. He's doing all the worrying for us about our needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you. Jesus is like, oh my gosh, if you could just see how much I love you and care and already know about all of your needs, you'd stop worrying so much, woman. You would put down and release the things. You'd drop your bucket and receive what my Father has for you. The third thing that we see, number three, is that religious social issues had distracted her from what really mattered. Jesus is bringing this crazy profound moment where he is exposing the deepest brokenness of her life, right? Nobody gets married five times in the first century or even now, honestly, and lives with someone who's not their husband without deep, deep soul brokenness. He's exposing it and he wants to do something about it. That is the thing that matters. And for a moment, she's like, oh, wow, you, you're a prophet. You know about me. But then immediately changes the subject and is like, well, you know what? Um, so our, our ancestors, uh, she starts telling this like thing, right? Our ancestors uh, worshiped over here and, and you worship over there. So like, right, she, she, Jesus is trying to go like to the depths of her soul. And she like tries to keep it up here on the surface, right? Jesus is trying to get down to the heart. She's like, keep it in the head, keep it in the head, keep it in the head. Jesus wants to do the work of the soul. And she's like, I got to keep it on the surface. And so she starts talking about this highly debated thing. It's a distraction from what God is trying to do. You know, in Ephesians 6, it says that the fiery darts of the enemy come at us. You know that in wartime back then, the fiery darts weren't just to like bring destruction. Uh, more than that, they were actually to bring distraction than destruction. They were to 
get, get the soldiers' eyes of the opposing army off of what was right in front of them and look up like this. I think that's what the enemy does with us. He, he sends these little fiery arrows and we're like, that can't be the enemy. It's just like a little thing. I'm watching a cute like firefly. And then it's like, right? This is what I think the enemy was doing right here, trying to get her eyes distracted from what God was doing right in front of her. I think this cultural religious debate was doing that. And we know it from our own experience that God can be doing something amazing right in front of us and we can totally miss it because we're caught up in fruitless debates and issues. This is the kind of thing that Paul wrote to Titus about in Titus 3 when he said, do not get involved in foolish discussions. These things are useless and a waste of time. Now listen, there are some things that are very close to the heart of God that also happen to be social issues or even political issues, you know, things like racial justice and uh, abortion and sexuality and um, sex trafficking. Those are like happen to be political social issues, but are very near to God's heart. We should spend our time talking about those things. But there are a lot of things that are not even close to near to God's heart that are an absolute waste of time and 100% useless. It's part of why we're doing this prayer fast where we're going to be fasting from media and social media for seven days because sometimes we don't even realize that we're caught up in something until we get a little distance and we see it from over here and we're like, oh my gosh, I was totally entangled in that. We're praying that this uh, media fast that we're starting a week from tomorrow, we'll, we'll do that. So this woman was distracted by things that really didn't matter. All right, let's shift our attention now to the disciples. I'm going to put this map back up that we showed last week. This is the route, um, the red line is the route that Jesus took the disciples on to go from Judea in the south up to uh, uh, Galilee in the north. The blue lines are the route that the, the Jews would have normally taken. They would have done everything possible to avoid Samaria. I spoke last week a little bit more in depth as to why. But it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Without apology, Jesus takes the disciples through a place he knows they will have a difficult very difficult, very uncomfortable, possibly scary time with. Why didn't Jesus go to Samaria alone? Because this revival in John chapter 4 is not just about the lost, it's about the church. It's not just about this woman, it's about the disciples. When God is bringing revival, it's not only about the lost, he's wanting to do something new in the church. It's a different kind of thing for sure, but revival nonetheless Sadly, the disciples, the church people, if you will, totally miss it, as we often do. So the disciples are off getting food, right? Jesus is with the woman, having this conversation. Jesus finally tells the woman, I'm the Messiah. Her eyes are open. She's tripping out. She's like, oh my gosh, I got to go tell my community. Goes back to her community. Right then, the disciples come back from getting food. They're like, what is happening? <laughs> Jesus says to them, verse 35, we read it earlier, we'll read it again. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the field. Listen, they are ripe for harvest. Literally, the word is white for harvest. It's what grain looks like when it is ready to be plucked. The top of it gets white. Jesus is using this white-topped grain illustration to speak about the spiritual harvest of souls that is ripe to bring in to God's kingdom. He's not talking about a physical harvest. He's talking about a spiritual one, specifically the Samaritan people. Fun fact here, the Samaritans 
wore turbans. And I wonder if, as the woman was coming back with her community, if Jesus looked down the hill and saw all of these white turbans coming, this mass of people, and said, hey, look, the fields are white for harvest. This would have been part of the gospel story. They didn't know. This was part of what Jesus was doing. The kingdom of God wasn't just coming to Judea and Jerusalem and Galilee. It was coming to places like Samaria, like he said in Acts 1, 8. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, listen, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth because if the gospel was coming to Samaria, it might as well have been the ends of the earth to the disciples. Friends, the ends of the earth can be right in your backyard, right on that little red path, right there. The nations can be right in your backyard if you will just open your eyes and see that God is there moving. Jesus is saying, you thought the harvest was coming at some other time, in some other way, and certainly at some other place. Open your eyes. Look, it's right here. It's right here, and it's right now. Revival is here right now. This was a revival moment for the church people as much as it was for the lost. They needed to embrace it, but they did not recognize it. Maybe they too had a vision problem. But with the disciples, I don't know that it was that their, their, their earthly view of things was too big, like with the woman. I think it's that their um, eternal view of things was too small. I think their narrow view of God and what he was doing, was, it, was too, it was preventing them from seeing what was right in front of them. There was no space for what God was doing in their little box that they had made for God. Which brings us to Numbers 4 and 5. It appears that, number 4, a narrow view of God's heart had prevented the disciples from recognizing a personal revival moment. As first century Jews, their understanding of who God was and what he cares about would have been defined by the religious leaders who were teaching that God was only a God of Israel and he did not care about the nation, certainly no one from Samaria. Like we often do, they had created a God of their own liking who cared about the things that they cared about, right? We do this. We do this. We make things... Uh, a big deal to us, and there might even be a God thing, but then we make God to care about those same things the most. Like that is most epic. That is the thing to God. And maybe it's a thing, but it's not probably the thing. And that kind of thinking actually prevents us from seeing all the other things that God is also doing. God was right there in Samaria bringing revival, but Samaria didn't fit inside of the box that the disciples had made for God, and so they were unable to embrace it. And so we have to check ourselves. Listen, if you think that you have such a complete understanding of God that there's no more room for discussion or expansion, you need to be where? Isaiah 55 says that God's thoughts and ways are high above ours. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above ours and his ways high above ours. Jesus was bringing revival and it was different. It was like not the same as what their minds could comprehend. And because of that, there was no room for it. They couldn't see it. A narrow view of God's heart. It's 
preventing them from recognizing a personal revival moment that God was trying to bring. Lastly, number five, a narrow view of God's plan had prevented them from recognizing a missional revival moment, right? So a narrow view of God's heart prevented them from seeing a personal revival moment. A narrow view of God's plan prevented them from recognizing this missional revival moment. As first century Jews, they would have believed that God's plan was to overthrow the current government and for the Messiah to set up a new righteous government where he would rule. That would have been God's plan, but that was not God's plan. Some of us need to hear this today. God is not waiting around until our government gets its act together or until he can get just the right people and the right policy in the right place so that he can infiltrate our uh, society with the good news through the government. God doesn't need that, doesn't generally use that as his primary vehicle. That's not what he was doing then. Guys, that's not what he's doing now. He's not waiting around for that. These guys, though, were so convinced that God needed to do that in order to bring revival that they couldn't see anything outside of that. A narrow view of God's plan was preventing them from recognizing and joining in with the revival that was already in motion. I love the lyric to that song we've sang a couple times. Revival's in the air. Catch it if you can. Like God is on the move. Hey, dude, you, you, if you want to stick with him, you better like get on board. Jump on that train, right? Catch it if you can. Don't miss it. To be fair, this would have been really hard for the disciples. They would have had no grid for this. It would have been uncomfortable. It would have seemed unsafe. Jesus bringing revival to Samaria, even going into Samaria, certainly out of the ordinary. But isn't that kind of what God does? Here's the thing, man. We all want to see revival moments where whole communities come to faith like happened here. But what if God also wants to bring a reviving in his church? It's not going to look like it's going to look out there, and often it's going to be uncomfortable as uncomfortable as a, Samar a Jew going into Samaria. Maybe there's a reason why scripture describes salvation as living water, but sanctification as fire. Becoming more like Jesus can sting a little bit. Revival for this woman was like, oh my gosh, I'm free. This is amazing. Shame lift us. That's how it feels when we get saved, right? For the disciples, the revival moment was like, oh my God. What? Fire. Same thing in Jesus people movement, man. For the hippies, they were like, oh, this is the best trip I've ever had. Are you kidding me? Jesus? For the people in the church, so many of them was like, hippies? Stings a little. It's a little fiery. Joe Ray, Billy's wife, uh, said to me the other day, after not getting there, um, remodel plans uh, approved for a year. Five kids living in a two-bedroom house. She was like, you know what, Dom? God doesn't care. And I was like, what? She said, God doesn't care about my family being comfortable. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I don't think God doesn't care about our American dream. Comfort, if you own a house, you're among the 1% of richest people in the entire world. Yeah, God probably doesn't care that much. And often sanctification is uncomfortable. 
God cares about our lives producing fruit and us becoming more like Jesus, which often comes at the expense of our comfort, not as a result of it. And so I say, Jesus, send your Holy Spirit fire to wake us up, to disrupt your church if that's what you need to do. And I wonder if maybe part of this whole COVID thing right now is about God disrupting what we have been comfortable with in his church so that we can get on board with the new thing that he is doing. The question is, will we recognize it in order to participate in it? I'll end with this. When Jesus finally tells the woman that he's the Messiah, her eyes are open. She's like, oh my God, you're the Messiah. You know everything about me. And she's like, and you love me? And you've been sitting, you want me? What? Her eyes are open and everything changes. Check out what happens in verse 28. This is so important. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Leaving her water jar, the whole reason she came to the well in the first place was to draw water. It was everything she was there to do. But when her eyes were open to see who Jesus was, she opens her hands and lets go. We got to see this. This water jug represents so much. It represented her shame. It represented her identity. It represented her loneliness. It represented all of her failed marriages. It represented her uh, hiding. It represented all of it, her thirst, her physical needs, all of it. And I think the Holy Spirit led John, said, John, don't forget about her, her leaving the water jug there, bro. You write this down. You write this down. Because he wanted us to know that when we see Jesus, like, who cares? I don't care. Like, take that thing. I don't care. We let go. And letting go is exactly what needs to happen if you are going to grab hold of Jesus. Katie, just stand up and hand me that plant right there. Just hand it to me. Just hand it to me. I'm holding my water bucket. Just hand it to me. Just hand it to me. Hand I can't grab it. There must be a letting down until I grab hold, right? There has to be a letting go of the thing we're holding on to in order to grab hold of that which is eternal. And listen, we've all got our water jugs today, guys. We've all got our water jugs, something that we're holding on to that is preventing us from holding on to the living thing that God wants to give to us. And for some of us, that's shame, man. God is like, let go of that. Let me have that. For some of that, that is a, a prejudice like the disciples would have had. And God's like, let go of that. Let me have that. For some of us, it is this overwhelming needs. But God, I need that. It's as, it's as necessary as water. And he's like, yeah, I got you. I know everything that you need. Let go of that so you can grab hold of something eternal. For some of us, it's, it's social issues and debates and problems. And for some of us, it is a limited, narrow view of God and his plan. We've got to let go of it if we are to hold on and grab hold of Jesus and what he's doing. And so I've had to ask myself, and I want to invite you, Lord, if revival in the church often looks uncomfortable, then what would be uncomfortable for me? So I have a tendency to think, oh, this sermon's about everybody else. I'm good. I'm on track with the Lord. And the Lord showed me some things like, dang, I'd have a hard time with that and that if you were doing that right now, God. Maybe that's what he's doing in my life. Not saying that it is for sure, but I need to surrender that and say, okay, God, I just want more of you. And I need to surrender uh, my need to be comfortable and uh, stick with what I know. I need to surrender that. Church, I'm begging you, do the same.
so we can grab hold of Jesus and what he's doing. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would shut up the noise that prevents us from hearing you calling. We ask that you would numb our taste buds for anything other than you. I feel like so much of this season is like a mug of coffee that's too hot, it burns our tongue, and then we come to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's like, ah, it doesn't taste that good. God, heal our spiritual taste buds so we can taste and see that you are good. Heal our eye fatigue so that we can see with clarity and vibrance again. Heal our ear fatigue and the spiritual tinnitus so that we can hear again. And we ask that you would give us um, understanding as to what we need to do to participate in that. This woman needed to let down her water jug. The disciples needed to let go of their small, narrow understanding of you. Reveal to us, God, where our understanding of you is too small, too narrow. Reveal to us where earthly pain and needs and distractions and comforts are preventing us from seeing and receiving from you. Reveal to us things that we're holding on to that are not of you. Help us, oh God, to care about the things that you care about. We're gonna sing a song now. It's just this simple prayer. It's beautiful, it's perfect for what we're talking about right now. It's, and it's put into a melody so that we can sing it as a prayer. It just says, open our eyes, Lord. <laughs> open our ears, God. 